Hey, Pantheon listeners, Christian Swain here. You caught me just finishing up some editing on Getting Real with John and Beth. I want to share my first experience with Factor Meals for you. I think you'll find this interesting because I bet the same thing happens to you. I had just received my first shipment from Factor Meals the other day, and I was excited to try one of the prepared restaurant-quality meals for myself. Anyway, I was working away and noticed it was very late, and it was my night to make dinner. I jumped up and headed to the kitchen, went to grab the ingredients for the dish I was going to make, and realized I was missing a prime ingredient. Well, I could make a run to the store, or I could make one of my new factor meals. <laughs> Actually, the choice was easy. I grabbed a cavatappi, an Italian-style pork ragu with garlic broccoli, heated the oven per instructions, and minutes later was enjoying a very delicious, nutritious, and dietitian approved meal. It really was everything factor meals said it would be. No prep, no mess meals. Factor meals are 100% ready to heat and eat. Take it from me and head to factormeals.com slash pantheon50 and use the code Pantheon50 to get 50% off. That's factormeals.com slash Pantheon50 and use the code Pantheon50 to get 50% off. We went and played at this place called the Speakeasy, which was, you know, the hottest place in town in London. Everybody was there, man. Even the Beatles came to see us. Place was so packed, right up to the front of the station. We were amazing that night. The energy we got from the audience and the audience got from us. It was just an incredible night. I'm looking at the engineer. I said, can you believe what's going on here? That's Michael Jackson singing on the track with us, man. It was so cool and it sounded amazing. I and mean, he was just great. Hello and welcome to episode 52 of Vintage Rock Pod, the ultimate classic rock podcast that proudly claims that my music is better than yours. I'm Paul Stevenson, thanks as always for hitting play. Now, I've got a great interview for you today with Mark Stein, lead singer and organ player with the revolutionary 60s group Vanilla Fudge. He tells stories today that contain the Beatles and Jimi Hendrix, Michael Jackson, Dave Mason and much more. It's well worth a listen, let me tell you. Now, a couple of months ago, I had his Vanilla Fudge bandmate Carmine Apiece on the programme, so I make sure to steer around those sort of topics that we heard Carmine discuss to give you fresh rock and roll stories, because, you know, I'm nice like that. But definitely do go back and check out that interview with Carmine that I did on episode 43. You'll hear his tales of Led Zeppelin and John Bonham and... Ozzy and Sharon Osbourne and Jeff Beck and Rod Stewart and so much more. It's a really, really entertaining listen. That's episode 43, so do go back and check that one out. Quickly, though, a shout-out time to you first. I mean, thank you very much for hitting play. Thank you for listening, and thanks for the amazing feedback from the last few shows as well. A lot of nice comments about the Rock Hall episode that I released just a couple of days ago with uh, comedian Joe Quazala. A big thanks to Dave Malloy, Pete Richardson, and Jim Ferber for being in touch, and to Ryan Lease for saying, great to hear some positivity about the Rock Hall. I love the institution too. Sure, it's not perfect, but I've had years of enjoyment the brilliant ceremonies they put on thank you very much for getting in touch also shout out to a couple of more folk now uh, last week i was driving to pick up my son which is something i tend to do at night time because he's 16 and he's his girlfriend anyway i was listening to rainbow which is a common pastime for me and i realized that i'd skipped back and listened to the song catch the rainbow 
it must have been two or three times before I realised that I was doing it. Just when it gets towards the end of the song. Now, if you know the song itself, it's eight minutes long, the album version. Uh, when it gets towards the end of the track, I just skipped it back to enjoy again. And I, I realised I'd done this, like I said, maybe two or three times before thinking, oh, I'm listening to this over and over again. I do love the song. It's a beautiful track. And in fact, it was my most listened to song of 2021, apparently, according to Spotify. No wonder if I do keep pressing skip back. But anyway, I asked the Vintage Rock Pod Facebook page, what song could you listen to again and again and again on repeat? And as always, you didn't disappoint. And I genuinely love the variety of the answers that I get on there. Uh, Nicola Rowbottom and Peter Kowalczyk both selecting a Thunder song. Nicola with Backstreet Symphony and Peter saying Future Train. Now, I had the pleasure of interviewing Thunder lead singer Danny Bowes last year, so do check that out on episode 26. Charlie Tarasas uh, went for Born on the Bayou by Credence Clearwater Revival. James Pringle with Fleetwood Mac's Go Your Own Way. Brilliant. Richard Lamb opting for Edge of the World by Blue Oyster Cult. And Joey Michaud going for David Bowie's classic Life on Mars. Sean Fournier went with uh, the Damn Yankees track don't tread on me and uh, another former guest on the show from episode 48 donny v his official facebook page commented on the post saying his song party time now that brought out the donny v fans with michael finn saying he'd listen to any of donny's songs on repeat while jason stewart said that if he had to pick one he'd go with she wants more from donny's first solo album big thanks to everyone who messaged and got involved too it is very much appreciated if you haven't already then please do check out the vintage rock pod social media channel Give them a like or a follow or a subscribe or whatever it is you do on each of those platforms. And please do feel free to drop me an email. I'd love to hear from you. VintageRockPod at gmail.com. And I'll give you a mention on next week's show. But as for this week's show then, Mark Stein, lead singer and keyboard player with influential band Vanilla Fudge. Now the band crashed into the public awareness with the release of their brilliantly rearranged and reimagined version of You Keep Me Hanging On. It gained them friends and fans on both sides of the Atlantic and their tours with Led Zeppelin supporting them across the US are legendary. Now Mark worked for many years with another former guest on Vintage Rock Pod, Dave Mason, on many of his albums. Plus he was part of Alice Cooper's band in the late 70s and the Tommy Bolin band too. Now Mark has recently released his first ever solo album. It's called There's a Light which is pretty incredible when you think about it. So many years in the business and it's the first time he's put out a solo record. Anyway, he's a great storyteller tells some fantastic tales so I hope you enjoy this chat with him. Your beginnings started from a very young age, didn't you? I mean, your, your father was was keen to, to push your musical talents forward and you you were on TV at, was it 11 years old? Is that incredible? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I was I was on TV. I had a record out called Give Me a Chance when I was 11 years old. I was still in grade school. And my dad, yeah, he, um, he always was pushing me and pushing me and getting me out there. He got me to audition for this rock and roll show in New York City. And uh, the leader of the pack over there uh, really liked what I was doing. I wasn't playing keyboards at the time. I was playing guitar and, uh, you know, and singing. I was doing the, a lot of Buddy Holly kind of stuff and uh, the Big Bopper, uh, Richie Valens. You know, before yeah. the music died, I was playing all of that great music, you know. And I just had this thing. I, I, I had it at an early age. I had this rock and roll vibe. It just came to me. So I, I made the show and there was a guy uh, actually about 17 or 18 years old that was uh, coordinating the talent for that show. And his name was Neil Scott. And we kind of bonded really early. And he became friends with my dad and the family. And he was uh, 
you know, he was going in the studio a lot too and starting to write and produce songs for young, young cats. So he wrote me this song called Give Me a Chance. And uh, it didn't really go anywhere, but, you know, for somebody my age, mm -hmm. the experience was incredible because when we played this TV show, I was on TV with like Wayne Newton and the great uh, Sam Cooke. Wow. Which, uh, which how many people can say that? That was pretty incredible. <laughs> and I got my first taste of rock and roll when I, there was a rock and roll bus outside the venue. And I ran on there and I was seeing all the, the rockers from the band, all the different bands with the pompadour haircuts and the whiskey and smoking and the women and the perfume, <laughs> yada, yada. My, my father, he just ran up there, grabbed me by the hair and said, you're out of here. You know, he said, you got to get home. Your mom is waiting for you. We're out of here. So, but I, I, you know what? That was my first taste. I got the bug. I was bitten by rock and roll and and it never left me. Incredible. Uh, incidentally, Neil Scott, the fellow I was talking to as he got older, became a guy by the name of uh, Neil Bogart, who started uh, the biggest independent label in L.A. called Casablanca. He discovered and launched on a summer kiss, the village people, there's a whole list. So this young guy became one of the uh, entrepreneurs in the in, uh, in the rock industry at a very early age. And sadly, he he also passed from cancer. I don't even think he touched 40. I think it was 39 or something. And uh, yeah, that's another sad story. But uh, yeah, that was my early uh, my early fledgings as a rocker. Indeed, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And it didn't take you very long to become a full, fully fledged rocker. I mean, you were still teenagers yeah. yourself and, and Carmine and, and the rest of the boys in Vanilla Fudge, weren't you? Right, yeah. Well... I started playing. I, I, I was playing accordion. That's another thing. My dad wanted me to be Myron Florin or Dick Contino. You know, back in the early 60s, uh, they were like the stars of the accordion world on the Lawrence Welk show. I don't know if anybody's uh, old enough that's listening that remembers that. But if you do, you're probably smiling. <laughs> so I, he, he got me into doing accordion lessons. I got into it. I hated it. I didn't want to do that. I wanted to stay with the guitar to his... You know, he, he was really annoyed by it, but uh, my drive towards rock and roll prevailed. And <laughs> so anyway, I uh, <laughs> I started playing organ with a high school band uh, called Dynamics. And, uh, you know, the big change for me came uh, when I first saw Felix Cavallari and a band called uh, The Young Rascals in New York City. That's the first time I saw Hammond B3 up close, you know, the majestic sound of this beast you know, talking about the organ <laughs> and, uh, and Felix was amazing. I mean, he's was so soulful and his voice was so incredible. You know, he was an R&B blue eyed soul singer, as was the whole quartet, which was the best band I ever saw at 18 years old. And I wanted I wanted to get an organ, man. That's what I wanted to do. I had my dad. I said, I got to I got to get this Hammond. So he he slapped down three thousand dollars for me. He was a working guy. You wow. know, he went into the hole to to, to get it for me. But you know, I got this Hammond B3 organ in Leslie. And uh, again, I was working with uh, Tim at the time through that Rick Martin band. And I'm glad I brought it up because when we saw the Rascals, we decided that's what we wanted to do. We wanted to do something more progressive. So we left the Rick Martin band. So I had the organ taken over to Tim's porch in Richfield, New Jersey, because I was in a little garden apartment in New Jersey. It wouldn't even fit up the stairs. <laughs> so that's that's when I started going there day after day and just learning the secrets of, of this fantastic instrument. And I developed, you know, shortly my own style. We started our own band and we recruited Vince Martell, who was a really cool guitar player from the Bronx. 
And we had a, a, a drummer by the name of Joey Brennan that was also in Rick Martin's band. So we went on to play all the clubs around the New Jersey area. And uh, I happened upon a band called The Vagrants out in Long Island who uh, had a guitar player by the name of Leslie West around 1966. And this is the first time I saw a band with so much drama and dynamics and it completely blew my mind. I was totally mesmerized. They were doing like the, the, the theme song from the movie Exodus. They were doing like uh, If I Was a Carpenter and all these songs and they started to slow them down. And I never saw anything like that, uh, the power and that dynamics. And they were the biggest thing in the New York, New Jersey area. Why they never became famous on a national level, I don't know. But that was the band that inspired me to want to reimagine other people's songs. That's how that whole started, the whole thing started. So Vanilla Fudge ultimately was a hybrid between the Rascals and the Vagrants, but we needed a drummer that had the capabilities of playing the symphonic arrangements that I wanted to do. And Joey was a good drummer, like a rolling, like a Charlie Watts type of drummer, but we had to find somebody else that also had a, another voice because we, you know, we, it was me and Tim and Vinny could all sing. We wanted a fourth singer. So Tim and I went looking around, trying to recruit a drummer. We found ourselves in this place called the Choo Choo Club in Garfield, New Jersey one night. And we saw this cat by the name of Carmine Apice. That's how we pronounced his name in those days. Mm-hmm. And uh, this guy was really awesome. He had this incredible, powerful foot. And the way he played, you know, his fills and his independent, he looked really cool. And he was singing harmonies with the band and everything. And me and Tim looked at each other. I said, that's the cat, man. we got to get this guy in the band. So I went backstage and I remember it was a cold night. Got him outside and uh, we told him about the musical approach that we wanted to do. And then he got really excited. He said, yeah, man, it sounds great. Let, let's do it. We instantly you know, had this uh, magic as a quartet. The playability and the vocal ability made itself known really so quick. I mean, within a week to 10 days, we, we just learned all these songs. And my dad called this guy, Philly Basile in Long Island at a very popular club called the Action House where everybody in the area was playing. And he got him to give us an audition, you know? So we went out, we auditioned and he really liked the band. And ultimately he said, I actually want to manage the band. I think they really got something special. And that's how that whole thing started. That was the new level. That, that was the new point where we evolved from that. Okay. And we started developing our style. We started developing our arrangements. We started developing a following in Long Island and we started playing in a place in Dorian's uh, up in Newport, Rhode Island, which was another club on, on the water. So it started to grow. We started getting a really good buzz and uh, we, we came up with this reimagined version. If you keep me hanging on me and Tim, actually one night we're listening to the radio in front of a place called the Cheetah, a discotheque around 66 in New York city and Diana Ross and the Supremes came on and the song, we were smoking something and having a beer or whatever. And uh, the song just sounded so bloody fast, you know? <laughs> and I just said, we looked at each other and said, man, this, this thing slowed down with these lyrics. It sounds so happy. Why does it sound so happy? And Timmy said, you know what, man, you know, why don't you do your thing, go to work on it, see if you come up with an approach. So I did, I came with this, came up with this, approach uh, to the beginning i met with Vinny, and he had this really great rock raga lick that he developed and we worked together and we came up with this introduction and then carmine and tim you know came in and 
you know, they started playing and we started developing this thing, the vocal. I don't know. It just happened, you know. And after a couple of hours, we knew we had something really special. We couldn't wait to, uh, to play this, this uh, to unleash it, you know, in the world. And, and when we started playing it in the clubs, all the people used to dance. They stopped dancing and they just they just came up to the front of the stage. And it was just like watching an awe, you know. And the club owners were getting pissed off because they weren't going to the bar to drink. So they were saying, we can't use this band anymore. They're not playing the normal top 40 stuff that we, you know, we got to make money. They got to buy whiskey. They got to buy beer, you know. But eventually uh, the style just caught on. We went into the studio uh, with a producer, which was Shadow Martin at the time. He was, uh, you know, one of the most popular producers on the East Coast. And he was blown away with the band. We went in the studio. We we recorded "You Keep Me Hanging On" in one take. Wow! In mono, and that's the iconic song that's gone on for a half century or more. And uh, it just happened really fast. And we went on and played all our you know known arrangements of Eleanor Rigby and "Ticket to Ride," the Beatles songs, and "Bang Bang." We we came up and we we put this amazing first album together for a bunch of young guys which caught the industry by storm. Suddenly, you know, eight months in, here we are, opening for the Mamas and the Papas, 20,000 people, the Portland Coliseum, and we were scared shitless, you know? <laughs> uh, I don't know, man. The story goes on and on, you know? Uh, and we, we, we suddenly were at the center of the pop music industry. The album jumped up the charts. Suddenly it was... Number 30 with a, I remember in LA, we were wow, it's number 30 with a bulletin billboard. We were like so giddy. And we were doing shows with the Fifth Dimension and Sonny and Cher and, and all these great acts of the era. And I was such a big fan. I was just walking on in heaven every day, you know, you know, Phenomenal. meeting Keith Rell from the Yardbirds, hearing him, you know, talking about this new band, you're in Vanilla Fudge. And I'm like, wow, you're in the Yardbirds. Oh, wow. You know? <laughs> so it was great. I mean, the way it all evolved, I was a fan of everybody. Everybody started becoming a fan of the, of the Fudge. We went and did our first show in England in 67. Oh, it was amazing. We, we, uh, we opened for the Who, who uh, I idolized, you know. And we opened for them at the Savile Theatre. And uh, we went over great, and they were really pissed off because their fans were like really <laughs> into the fuzz, man. And Pete Townsend was saying all these weird things in the press about us, which he apologized for a half century later in his book. You can read it if you want to. But uh, yeah, it was amazing. <laughs> so there was a big buzz on the fuzz in England. We went and played at this place called the Speakeasy, which was, you know, the hottest place in town in London. Everybody was there, man. Every rock star, even the Beatles came to see us one night. Everybody, wow. it was, you know, I couldn't even like hardly breathe. The place was so packed right up to the front of the station. We were amazing that night. The energy we got from the, from the audience and the audience got from us. It was just an incredible night. And we just exploded throughout England and throughout Europe in those days. Uh, while we were over there, we found out our album went into the top 10 in America. And I told the guys, look, we were just so amazed by the look of the who, you know, the first time they came down this winding staircase, we went to see Jimi Hendrix while we were in England and the who came and they looked like they were out of the 17th century, like Lords, like, I don't know, like something out of a tale of two cities, which has incredible velvet coats and high collars and cinched waist and these scarves and the hair and the whole look. So we ran down a Carnaby street and Kings road and we started buying up all these fabulous 
<laughs> all this great clothes, man. We oh, wanted to look brilliant. like the who. And we did. So when we came back to America, we looked amazing. We were the first American band that not only had this great sound, but had this great fashion. So we brought this all back to America. And, and before long, we're on the Ed Sullivan show. And we kind of blew America apart with that live performance. And, and there you go. It goes on and on. I mean, the whole story is in my book. You keep me hanging on. The Raging Story, Rock Music's Golden Age. I mean, I could talk from now until uh, <laughs> January of next year, but here we are. <laughs> indeed, you know. indeed. Uh, talk to me about Ed Sullivan then, because uh, for us in the UK, when we hear Ed Sullivan, we think of the Beatles and, and that famous performance. But when people, when everyone else talks about Ed Sullivan, they talk about the Beatles and Vanilla Fudge. It was like, it is the two most iconic performances on that show. So tell me about your experience on that show. Well, the Ed Sullivan show was the biggest the biggest show in the world in the in the in the sixties, late fifties into the late sixties. If you were on the Ed Sullivan show, I mean, you were in everybody's living room at uh, whenever it was eight or nine o'clock every Sunday night. You were in everybody's living room. You became a household word if you made it to that show. So when the Fudge got on that show, uh, and we came off really great. Uh, incidentally, one of the reasons we sounded so good is we brought back. Uh, this cat, Bruce Wayne, who's uh, an English roadie sound guy from London, who we brought back to America, and he managed to get into the control booth, which was a no-no because it was all union cats. But somehow he convinced <laughs> him to, he convinced him to let, let, let him be involved in mixing the band live because those guys didn't know how to mix a rock band, you know? <laughs> I mean, it wasn't Guy Lombardo. It wasn't, you know, you know what I'm saying? So... Yeah. But anyway, that was one of the reasons we had the power in the bottom end, too. But we came off great, and uh, we did become household names for, for a while. And our albums jumped way up on the charts because of the incredible exposure. You know, it's, a, it's just a great thing to have in my portfolio of fame, as it were. But uh, <laughs> the Beatles, of course, Elvis Presley, the whole British invasion, you know, the animals, everybody was on that show if you were famous and we were at the pinnacle at that time and uh, it was it was awesome. Hey Pantheon listeners, Christian Swain again with something every podcast listener and music junkie needs to hear. As I'm sure you can guess, I listen to a lot of podcasts. I also listen to a lot of music, so having high-quality headphones and earbuds are absolutely critical to my day. Oh, and I have numerous pairs. In fact, I have a junk drawer of used devices that have bitten the dust, so I've tried them all. Recently, I was sent a pair of earbuds by Raycon, and the first thing I noticed was the cost. Uh, looks like their products are about half the price of other premium brands. Okay, that's cool. And the reviews seem pretty stellar. Okay, checks that box. So I got my Raycon Everyday Earbuds, a nice packaging to open, and what I immediately noticed were the pack of ear tips for sizing. Uh, I'll tell you, I have small ear canals. Uh, I know a flaw. So to see choices for the best fit, uh, especially while exercising, uh, oh yeah. And yes, they were immediately comfortable. Sound quality was great too. Plus I have three EQ options that I love because I like more bass in my music and less in the podcasts. Eight hours of playtime for the battery is great as well. Surround sound, noise canceling, and awareness mode all included. I think I'm in business, and I just realized I've had them in all day. Like I said, super comfortable. Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order 
plus free shipping. That's right. You'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash Pantheon. Absolutely brilliant. Now, we, we had Carmine on the show recently, and he spoke a lot about Led Zeppelin. Yeah. The stories are very famous about the fudge and, and Zeppelin together. But tell us about um, the tour you did with Jimi Hendrix then. That was 68 as well, wasn't it? You did, was it 15, 15 dates with him? Yeah. What, what was that like? It was like a circus on the road. <laughs> I mean, Hendrix hit the road. He must have had a, It seemed like he had a thousand people around him. It was like it was like Bonham and Bailey you know, on the road all the time. All kinds of colors and clothes and mm-hmm. guys and women and everybody you know, just taking advantage of the guy because he was so generous. You know, that's a whole nother side of Hendrix. People probably don't know. Uh, but uh, it, it was amazing. Here we were opening for uh, opening for the greatest uh, rock star of the time. I got to know Jimmy and Noel Redding. And Noel and I became friends. And, and uh, Mitch Mitchell, who I always thought was one of the greatest, you know, progressive, you know, rock, jazz rock drummers of, of his era. And uh, it was so cool just being a part of that uh, as well. You know, I used to hang out with Jimmy after the show. We'd, we'd have a drink. We'd, we'd have a pizza. <laughs> it was just like a couple of cats from New York, man. You know? But it was really, uh, it was nice. It was really nice. And he loved the fudge. He, he used to call me the fox. He used to stand on the side of the stage. <laughs> and I used to sit on this uh, padded swivel chair. And I used to swivel around on the B3 and I'd come and get to the front of the organ, run on a downbeat, and my hair would just sit down and you say, you look like a fox. And I watch him and you look like, I'm going to call you the fox. <laughs> so that was my nickname. That's what he gave me, you know. And didn't you get to hear um, Electric Ladyland before anybody else heard it? Yeah, there was a night in uh, in Phoenix when we were hanging out. I was I was in a hotel room with Mitch and Noel. It was the wee hours in the morning, and Jimmy comes strolling in with these acetates, which... Uh, like copies of it's like a demo mm-hmm. before the actual records were pressed so you can hear how that how the actual production was going to sound on vinyl you couldn't play it more than maybe two or three times before it lost generations but he had a brand new one with him it was electric ladyland and he had this little well we had this record player with the left and right speaker like hooked up to the side you know and he played it and here we all listening to the gods made love and the rest of that record and i, I was just like just a, it was just a knockout night hearing that guitar, like mm-hmm. panning from left to right. I mean, I'm going back 55 years, mate, you know. <laughs> but uh, I still remember that, like, uh, well, almost like it was yesterday. Pretty crazy. And I didn't realize the, the importance of that moment until I'm talking to you now and over the last few years uh, to to have experienced that another link as well between yourself and jimmy is dave mason obviously dave played on all along the watchtower and 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 cross town traffic and right. things like that and you worked didn't you with dave uh, on, on a number of his albums and things like that i yeah. work with dave i work with dave mason uh probably about three four years in the late 70s and uh yeah incidentally that was one of the great songs that we always encored it was all along the watchtower because he had it he had like a, a big he had a big air hit with it too you know and people, people used to freak out of it. That was a great band, by the way. And playing with Dave was was a lot of fun. Yeah, that was very cool those years, too. Excellent. Yeah. And I, I know you've told it a few times, but tell us again that the story about Michael Jackson, that the day you, you kind of bumped into him in the studio and you managed to get him to sing on the record. Oh, that was a great night, man. I bet. <laughs> we were doing a record, I guess it was around 1980, and uh, 
I was in the studio and I, I left the control room. I went, I went out to, uh, to take a break and, uh, and there was Michael Jackson landing up against the, the soda machine. And uh, the Jacksons were down the hall <clears throat> doing, doing a project in another room. So I went up to Michael and I introduced myself and uh, I said, Michael, why don't you, why don't you, would you like to come, come into the studio and check out this track? Because at the time he had this big album, this multi-platinum record uh, off the wall. It was before Thriller, but he was enjoying huge solo success at the time. And he was so cool. He said, yeah, man. I, I, yeah. I, yeah. I said, follow me. <laughs> he came in, we put up the track and, you know, he's, it's a, it's a song called save me. And he started uh, snapping his fingers and getting into it. Started dancing around the console. And, and I just said, Michael, why don't you go out into the studio, man? It's a mic out there and some phones. Why don't you go and scat on it? You know, I, 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 I just, that's what it's said to him. He, he went out, he put the cans on, and, and in one take, he, uh, he just floored me and everybody in the room. And it was such an incredible moment. And I, I'm looking at the engineer, I said, can you believe what's going on here? That's Michael Jackson singing on the track with us, man. It was so cool, and it sounded amazing, and he was just great. So, And, uh, and I had read, written a whole bunch of songs on that record, so I was so excited. So I'm saying, wow, I've got Michael Jackson on this record. This is going to enhance sales, man. I'm looking at a new house, you know. <laughs> but uh, unfortunately, his father kind of intervened after he found out what happened. And something went down legally and they didn't promote it because of some legal thing. But, but anyway, it was a great it was a great uh, it was a great night at any rate. And uh, so that's how that happened. Yeah. Another great experience to chalk up, absolutely. Now I could speak to you for forever about your, your fantastic stories, but you actually have a new album um, out recently called "There's a Light," and it's your first yeah. solo album to be released. So it's it's really really exciting to hear about this. So so tell us about the the, the direction and where this came from. Well, "There's a Light" uh, is my solo album on Deco Entertainment, Deco Records, which uh, just, actually just been recently uh, released just before the new year, and uh, it's uh, I, I wrote a song called "We Are One." And I wrote it about six weeks into the initial pandemic in 2020. And I was sitting at the piano and I just had this vibe that came to me. And I'm just saying, man, I, you know, here we are, you know, uh, we're battening down the hatches, you know, afraid to shake our neighbor's hand, hug our children, you know, and all these lyrics came to me in this melody. And I wrote this song and it reflects the pandemic back then. And, and oddly enough, it's as if I just wrote the song last week. Because here we are with this new variant, and it's the same set of circumstances, you know. And to me, I got this this vibe that it was like some kind of a karmic thing I was getting. Because humanity has been through world wars and and uh, horrific hurricanes and uh, racial disparity, political unrest, social unrest, what have you, through the centuries. So we still have a way of maybe not listening to each other, respecting one another. And I just thought like, okay, well, this is nature's way of saying, okay, you weren't happy. So here you go. I'm just saying, it's just a concept in my crazy mind, but that's what came out. I was really proud of the production and the song. Uh, and it's, you know, it's, uh, it's getting some great reaction out there. It's the first single of the album. And I hope you get a chance to, uh, to hear it and get some play on it. And there's a video on it. And, uh, 
Yeah, so I mean, there's a light. It's really the, the, the rest of the album is a collection of songs that I had pretty much in the can, but I never had an outlet because I write a lot of social songs. You know, I have songs like uh, We Are One and, and I have a reimagined version of Ball of Confusion, which is the Temptations song from the 70s, which people are taken to, which I think is pretty cool. I have songs like uh, Racism and We Are Survivors. I did another reimagined version of The Rascals People Gotta Be Free. Let's Pray for Peace is another song that I wrote. So, so, so There's a Light is really a collection of songs uh, of love and patriotism and, and social issues that uh, we've all been faced, and faced with and dealing with. And uh, it's gotten really excellent reviews. And uh, unfortunately, I was going to go out and do some shows. I was scheduled to do a, a thing called World Stage in, in a couple of weeks in Chicago, but it just got postponed because of the pandemic. So here we are, uh, like here I am saying, here we are batting it down the hatches. So it's a natural, those words. Um, we're faced with more cancellations and postponements with gigs that got that are booked going forward for 2022. But we'll see how it all plays out, you know? Indeed. But just touching on, on There's a Light, um, people can get that on, on the usual places that they find music and stream it and buy it and all that sort of stuff. And what's the best way to keep in touch with you then, Mark? I mean, with your news that's coming out, what's the best way for, for fans to get in touch with you? Well, you can go to mark-stein.com, okay? Or you can go to vanillafudge.com and uh, you can... You can find my book on mark-stein.com. So you can go to either site so you can find out what's going on with me and you know all the other guys from Vanilla Fudge because we're all involved in different projects. <clears throat> and uh, wishing you and everybody in Scotland and around the world a safe and you know a happy new year. And uh, everybody's got to hang in and uh, just try to be patient. And uh, we'll see uh, how it all plays out. Absolutely. Well, it's been a pleasure chatting with you, Mark. Uh, uh, best of luck for everything in the future and hopefully catch up again with you soon. Thank you so much and, and, and uh, all the best and stay well. The wonderful Mark Stein there. Check out that new album, There's a Light, and give him and Vanilla Fudge a follow on the social media channels. And as I said earlier, to hear more about Vanilla Fudge and the mad world of rock, including stories about Rod Stewart and Jeff Beck and John Bonham and Ozzy Osbourne, then check out episode 43 for a brilliant in-depth chat with Carmine Apice, Mark's bandmate in Vanilla Fudge. It's a brilliant episode. Right, it's that time of the show to give you my top five song lists. And seeing as though I've already done Vanilla Fudge, and that was on the aforementioned episode 43, I thought I'd go with a man that Mark mentioned in the interview, for this week's list and a man I'm sadly not going to be able to interview for obvious reasons. I'm talking about, of course, the legend that is Jimi Hendrix. Now, remember, this is my personal favourite list, the songs I enjoy the most. It's a subjective list, so it's okay to disagree. And let's be honest, no matter what five songs I'm going to pick here, there's always going to be someone who says, what about X or what about Y? So here we go. My favourite five songs from Jimi Hendrix, according to Vintage Rock Pod. At five is his second ever single release back in 1967, reached number three in the UK charts. It's a blistering three minutes of fuzzed up guitars and Q magazine ranked it the greatest guitar track ever. But it's number five of my favourite Hendrix songs. It is the brilliant Purple Haze.
At four is a song released at the height of the Vietnam War. It's a blistering track, some of his best guitar work in my opinion, and depending on the night, the song would last between 12 and, and 20 minutes or more usually. His version recorded at the Fillmore on the 1st of January 1970 is the best for me. At number four is Machine Gun. From a blistering freeform jazz session at number four to a short, sharp, blistering two and a half minute song at number three. It is one that appeared on the Are You Experienced album. It's funky as hell, psychedelic and brilliant. And number three is Fire. My number two song is a cover, which Jimmy made his own in reality. It was his first UK single. It peaked at number six. It's a brilliant song and was the last song played at Woodstock in 1969. It's soulful with brilliant guitar licks throughout. At number two is Hey Joe. And at number one is one of the greatest songs of all time, in my opinion. It's just brilliant. His guitar work is searing. The drumming on the track by Mitch Mitchell is uh, superb and it drives it along at frenetic pace at times. From the album Electric Ladyland, released six months after the Bob Dylan version, it was a big hit in the UK with single sales certified platinum over here. My favourite Jimi Hendrix track, the number one on my list, is his legendary version of All Along the Watchtower. There you go, my favourite five songs from Jimi Hendrix. If you want to hear more about that recording of All Along the Watchtower, then check out episode 42, where I spoke with uh, Dave Mason, who's had a few mention on today's show. He was good friends with Jimi and actually played on Watchtower and on Crosstown Traffic, so you can hear Dave recall his memories of playing with Jimi Hendrix on that episode. So I know there's going to be much debate around that list, as ever. There's a ton of songs I could have chosen to go on there. Voodoo Child, probably being the obvious one. There's Little Wing, uh, Wind Cries Mary, Foxy Lady, Crosstown Traffic, it's uh, Red House, uh, Boulder's Love, you name it. In fact, quite literally, please do, I'd like you to name it. Get in touch with me. Tell me where you agree or disagree. Let me know your top fives, and you can do that by dropping me an email. Just send it to vintagerockpod at gmail.com or go to the Vintage Rock Pod Facebook page and find the post that I put up there during the week and comment below the picture. I'll give you a mention on next week's episode. Now, last week's show with uh, John Ellsley from Dire Straits contained a top five of Kate Bush songs, one of my favourite female stars of all time. But I also shared my favourite Dire Straits tracks as well, which sparked a debate. Now, Tony Willowson went with their early classic Sultans of Swing. Uh, Michelle Sadia and Marie Rosario both went for the track Brothers in Arms. It's a brilliant song. Uh, James Bosch went with Tunnel of Love and Skate Away as his favourites, while Chris Etna commented on my top five saying, what? 
No Telegraph Road, one of the greatest songs ever written. As always, a big thanks to everyone who got in touch with me throughout the week. Now, if this is your first listen, then uh, make sure to follow or subscribe to Vintage Rock Pod on whatever podcast platform you use so you don't miss any new episodes that drop. They usually come out on a Monday, so please do uh, check that out. And look back at the incredible back catalogue of big-name guests that we've got as well. I've mentioned a few during today's episode, but honestly, each guest has great stories to tell. So if you're a fan of classic rock, then it's well worth checking them all out. If you've got a second too, just uh, also head to VintageRockPod.com. It's the official website. Sign up to become a VRP VIP, where you'll get a newsletter at most once a week, although lately it's getting to the point of once a month, and I can only apologise for that. But it gives you information about future guests and episodes and chances to win things and other bits of information. It's completely free, and I won't pass on your details ever, I promise. Well, that's it for episode 52 then. A big thank you to you for listening. Uh, next week's show will feature an interview with a member of a British group whose album was the biggest selling UK album in 1972. You're going to hear his stories on next week's show. So until episode 53 then, remember, if you come across anyone who isn't a fan of classic rock, just tell them my music is better than yours. Take care. <laughs>